0: Well, this morning, I'd like us to, uh, in light of Thanksgiving and also Christmas season, which is, uh, believe it or not, nearly upon us, uh, I'd like us to consider shadows or images of Christ in the, in the Old Testament. So patterns, types of the Lord Jesus. You know, the whole Old Testament is rightly viewed as a promise. It's a, a shadow, um, a model of a reality that was yet to come in Jesus. And so all through the Old Testament, if we read it properly in light of the new, we see images of Christ that aren't necessarily immediately apparent, but only when we're looking for them properly. And so this morning I'd like us to look particularly at Melchizedek and how he was an image or a shadow of the Lord Jesus But I want to look beginning in Psalm 110, which tells us about the coming of Jesus and mentions Melchizedek. And so Psalm 110, uh, believe it or not, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, There are about 30 New Testament citations of Psalm 110. So the New Testament sees this psalm as very important. Let's read this together. Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Messiah who is portrayed here. A holy king, a priest, one who would come to save and rule his people. We thank you, Lord, that he has come, that you've kept every promise here. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to see him more fully here uh, this morning, and that seeing him, we would believe him more and worship him and bow our lives in submission to such a great and mighty Savior. I pray for everyone here this morning that you'd strengthen our faith, Help us to see what is written in your good word and to build our lives upon it for Jesus' sake. In his name, amen. Well, before we get into this psalm, we need to understand who it's about. And I've already indicated Jesus, but there are some who read this and say it's primarily about David and the nation of Israel. And they take it uh, to be a coronation psalm about how God will bless the kings of Israel And, you know, verse 2 speaks of the king's rule in the midst of his enemies, and Israelite kings did rule in the midst of their enemies. Uh, Verse 5 speaks about how the king in this psalm will conquer the kings of the surrounding areas. And, of course, in the Old Testament, the Israelites conquered the kings of the surrounding areas. And so it's right to see some of the elements of this psalm as relating to Israelite kings, but ultimately it's clear it relates to Jesus, very clear. Uh, Christ himself made this point to the Pharisees, uh, referring to verse 1. And here's what Jesus said in Mark 2, verses 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is a son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the throng heard him gladly. In other words, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. And so there's two lords of David here. It can't be the son of David because in this day, a, a subordinate or an, uh, someone, a, a son could never be the su- superior of a father. This is how it was. If you were a son of your father, he was the superior. You were the subordinate, right? But here, David is calling him, my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Here's two lords of heaven that David himself is submitted to. And then if we look at Psalm 110, verse 4, we see that this Lord, who is David's Lord, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then if we look at verse 6 of our psalm, it says, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is clearly not merely an Israelite king, is it? This is Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, pointing forward to the Christ who is to come. The psalm is built around two oracles or uh, prophetic utterances of God, two declarations from the mouth of God. And the first one is in verse 1, and the second one is in verse 4. That's the structure of this psalm, two oracles of God. And then under each oracle, there's a commentary for what it means. And so let's, let's build our sermon around uh, these two oracles. The first oracle in verse 1 is a kingly oracle, which David explains, in verses 2 and 3. And what verse 1 teaches us is about the nature of the reign of this Messiah. What's it like? Well, let's consider what the rule of Jesus is like. What What is it like for this king to rule? Who is he like? Well, it says, first of all, he sits at the Father's right hand. You see that? That's a place of highest honor. If someone were to sit at the right hand of of God the Father, that is the highest place of honor and glory. The Father never told an angel to sit at His right hand. He never told any prophet or priest to sit at His right hand. He never even told David, who is the, um, the highest king of the Old Testament, to sit at His right hand. Instead, here we see the Messiah Sits at the right hand of the Father. So, what is his rule like? Well, his rule is a place of highest honor, the right hand of God the Father. It's also worth noting here that he's seated. So, imagine him sitting here at the right hand of God the Father, so so he's not frantic. What's he doing? Sitting. (laughs) He's not bothered. What kind of a ruler is he? He's a sitting ruler. He's not laboring. He's not doing anything but sitting and ruling. His his rule is absolutely effortless. His power is perfect. He rules over his domain with a a perfect, absolute rule. And he sits while all of his enemies are being subdued beneath his feet and made into a, a footstool. The image is this, that Christ's enemies are not a threat to him in the least. They're no threat. You know, when you look around the world today and you see enemies, maybe you have personal enemies. Maybe you have, you think of enemies uh, in the workplace or enemies in our culture around us. And you see them and they, they provoke fear in your heart perhaps or anger uh, or worry that maybe the enemies are going to conquer. Christ is just not worried. He's seated. He's ruling with perfect power. He's not frantic. He's not trying to change what he's doing and try to uh, negotiate with the world. No, he's at perfect peace. He's not worried. If Jesus isn't worried, should you be worried? We are worried because we're human. So worry is something that's a part of the human experience. But do you have to be worried? Jesus is not worried. He's sitting and ruling. Why would you be anxious? You don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can trust Him to rule. And this says that God the Father sends out the scepter of the Messiah to rule, and then a key word, in the midst of His enemies. So power, the scepter, it says, it comes from Zion. What is Zion? It's the place of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, which is a type of Calvary the hill where the Savior was sacrificed. You see? And this is where the scepter comes from. Christ's power to rule flows from Zion to rule, and the Word is in the midst of His enemies. So here's the picture. The kingdoms of this world are full of wickedness and darkness. They were in Christ's day. There's nothing new. They were even darker in the days of Israel, much more wicked than anything we've ever seen. They were darker in our own century just, what, hundred years ago? A couple hundred years ago? You know? The world is dark, full of wickedness. Evil men plot to oppress and harm and use others for themselves. They build their own kingdoms on the backs of those weaker than them. And the world indulges its sinful, wicked lusts and pleasures, and it leads many to hell. But the Lord Jesus Christ rules over His people in the midst of His enemies. In the midst of the world, there is a kingdom of people who are gracious, humble, and faithful. There is. In the midst of the world, in the middle of this broken world of tumult and evil and sin and chaos, there is a people who are full of love and faith, you know, it's, it's true that the institutional church doesn't always manifest these qualities, uh, that the visible institutional church and her leaders are too often just as corrupt as the world. They can be proud and selfish and self-righteous and self-willed. I really don't have a lot of confidence in the institutional church, but I have great confidence in the kingdom people of Jesus who mourn over, the, over sin, who are poor in spirit, Christ's true people in whom he dwells, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers. Not perfectly. No one's perfectly this way, but they are this way. I believe in that. It's real. And Jesus has his people in the midst of a world of sin and chaos. And so that's the nature of his reign. This says, he has a, a certain kind of rule in the midst of his enemies. He's totally at peace. And one day, the one who's ruling all things in this way will make it plain who's ruling all things, and he'll clear the battlefield and bring all things to perfect subjection and peace on the last day in the age to come. But now look at, if you will, the response of his people. So this is who the king is. We're talking about who is this king? Who is the Messiah? And then how do the people respond? Well, verse 4 says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. You know, in our world, the opposite is true. Armies don't offer themselves freely to their commanders most of the time, especially when there's a real serious war. Uh, They're forced into battle. In fact, if you've watched the news at all, we've heard reports of forced battle from soldiers in the Russian army who were told they were on a training exercise and then they're forced to invade Ukraine. Anyone who turned and ran or didn't want to was just shot in the head until enough were convinced that they can't run, they have to fight anyway. That's how the armies of this world too often work. But Christ's army, His people, the people of His kingdom, look what it says, they offer themselves freely. It's the nature of the kingdom of Jesus. There's not a single forced convert. Not a single coerced confession Every true soldier in the army of Christ freely makes war against the true enemies, which are Satan, the temptations of the world, and the flesh. That's the nature of the covenant of grace. It includes believers only who worship from the heart. After all, His law is written on our hearts. And here we learn also something about what kind of ruler Christ is. So all this is really still trying to get to who is Jesus. We've seen who he is from the nature of his rule, his peace, the kind of people that he he rules. But who is he in himself? Well, he's a monarch rather than a dictator. Do you know the difference? Do you know what the difference is between a dictator and a monarch? There are many similarities. So, both dictators and monarchs wield great power, both command their people, both rule, both have authority. But here's the difference. A dictator forces his people into submission from the outside by coercion and power. That's a dictator. He dictates his own made-up laws to benefit himself. That's what a dictator does. He dictates whatever he wants you to do so that you benefit him. He manipulates and threatens people with laws and edicts to get his people to do his bidding. But a true monarch... A historic monarch. I'm talking about the ones that we even know were good kings in the past. But Jesus, certainly above all, doesn't dictate laws. Instead, he rules his people according to what is really true, good, and beautiful. Not what's in himself, but what's real outside of himself. A monarch rules according to the law of nature. To, what, to the way human beings really are. According to what's good for the people and the kingdom. And so he wins his people from the inside out so that they offer themselves freely. You know, with good monarchs, there's pomp and ceremonies and royal regalia and beauty and the people love it. There's not a feigned joy. There's a real joy. Because a real monarch rules his kingdom for good, understands what his people are like and what they need, and works to provide for them. And all of his laws benefit the whole. That's the point of a monarch. He's seen as wise, as worthy of rule. A monarch's people, where there's a true monarch, they're convinced that he is for them, because he really is for them for their health and well-being and good and life and provision. That's how Jesus rules his people. And if we doubt it, we look there at the cross. We look to Jesus, who knows we're sinners just like you. You know you're a sinner. He knows your need of life just like you know your need of life. And he died a bloody death and went into the ground and came out of the ground to purchase the life, the peace, the well-being that you want, that He knows you want for you if you just look to Him and then you follow Him by faith. So verse 3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in, look, holy garments. The idea here is that Christ's armies freely and willingly clothe themselves with battle robes because their hearts are captured by the excellence of the King. That's what happens in regeneration. What happens? Well, we get a new heart. We're clothed in, in Christ and by His Spirit. We have holy garments. He dwells within us and teaches us to live in His way, to fight as He's commanded, and we do so willingly because it's a good fight that we fight. Now, the Hebrew is difficult in the last part of verse 3, but in studying it and relying on those who know it better than me, (laughs) uh, I think the last part of verse 3 simply means that the armies of Christ are like young men, the dew of the morning, full of vitality and strength, and that the Spirit who wins us is our strength. And so there we have the nature of Christ's kingdom and the free and willing response of His people. But now we come to verse 4, which is the second oracle spoken directly by God. So we've seen the first oracle and an explanation. And now we see a second oracle, and we're going to see an explanation. But here's the second oracle which relates to Melchizedek. And it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's what our God's like. He never changes. He makes oaths, and he doesn't change, and he keeps his promises. And here's what he says to this Messiah You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you know, if you're reading this and you heard everything I just said, and then all of a sudden there's thrown in here this statement, it might seem out of place. Why all of a sudden is Melchizedek thrown in here? What's that got to do with anything? I don't know. I mean, it might seem that way to you. It did to me first time I read this. Why why is Melchizedek just dropped in here? And you might even then think, okay, well, this is an interesting interruption of thought. Maybe David will explain about Melchizedek in verses 5 to 7, and he doesn't, not directly. And so we're left wondering, what is this about Melchizedek? Why is he put here? Well, before we can answer that, and we are going to answer it, why is Melchizedek in here? What's he got to do with this? But we have to know who Melchizedek is, and he's only mentioned in one other place in the whole Old Testament one other place. So when this psalm was written, they had one place to look for what this meant. So look back with me, if you will, to Genesis 14, and let's see this one place. Now, by taking this detour, I'm interrupting the flow of the psalm, okay? But I think it's very important to understand this so we can come back and understand what Psalm 110 means. all of chapter 14 is important but the first part is kind of complicated and so i'm going to just summarize it for you in a way that makes it clear you can read it on your own later and see if what i said is true but it begins with four kings serving under Leomer. but these now when we say king we usually think of like the kings of england maybe you know king william the first, or Richard the first, or something. These are not like, these are mayors, okay? <laughs> They're mayors of towns. They're not anything like what we would think of a king of a kingdom. Uh, in this day, uh, towns in this area usually had about 5,000 people, so a little bigger than Clinton, right? But not much bigger. Or maybe ten to 15,000 if it was a larger town. A, a big city was more like 200,000. But these are kings of little towns. And it says that these mayors... Formed armies. Now, again, here an army is not like what you think of as an army. It's a it's a raiding party, okay? It's a band of men getting together to go raiding. And when they go to war against other kingdoms, they're not, these aren't, this is not an international war again. This is just a raiding party going to raid other kings, trying to take advantage of, of them. And then Genesis 14 tells us that these four kings get together and they decide to raid the territories of other kings. And they came from the north. So here's the land of Canaan. They're coming from the north down toward the south. And eventually they attacked the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were allied with three other kings, making five. So you got four kings from the north battling against five kings from the south. And there was a nasty battle, and it ends up with some of the soldiers falling into tar pits. And the four kings of the north end up winning the battle. Now, after the battle is won, here's what they did in this day. This was a custom. They stole the women and the children and the livestock, and they start hauling it all back up to the north where they came from. It's very traditional. It's exactly what would happen. They also killed off as many men as they could so that the men couldn't come and get revenge. That's just how it worked. Then the kings and their armies started marching back north, and they had all their spoils of war with them. But one of the surviving soldiers of the south escaped. He wasn't killed. And he went and he told Abram what had happened. And he said, Abram, your relative Lot, who was living in Sodom, has been captured and hauled off by the kings of the north. Abram hears this, and then he, he, he makes a plan. This is his relative, and he's got honor, and he's loyal to his relative. And so Abram uh, allies himself with three other kings, right, small-town mayors. So it's Abram and three other kings of, this, of the south, and they pursue the armies of the north, and it tells us that Abram gathered 318 trained men to defeat the four kings of the north. So they're coming, they're chasing them. And finally, there's a battle, and the four kings of the north start to lose the battle. Now, in this day, when you start to lose the battle, um, you run away. You don't, you don't stay till you're dead, right? So you see you're starting to lose, you run, and that's what they did. The four kings of the north started to run, they, they fled, and they started retreating. When they ran, Abram pursued them further. There was another battle, and they lo- the four kings of the north lost again. And pretty soon, the four kings of the north are just running, and they're dropping all their spoils. So they're leaving all their cattle and the, the, you know, the women and the children and everything. They're leaving it all. And finally, the northern army just scattered. And Then having won the victory, Abraham started the journey back. Now, here's the reason we need to understand the story. So why, Brother Tom, are you telling all this? What's the point? Well, if you just... In Genesis 14, if you take out the part about Melchizedek, which is verses 17 to 20, it reads like it's one seamless story. You don't need Melchizedek here. It's just like in Psalm 110 where he just pops in. It's like, what is he doing there? And it keeps going, same here. He just pops into Genesis 14. No more comment about him, and he's gone. You can take it out, and it reads like one story. Let me show you. Skip down to verse 21. When Abram gets back to Sodom with the spoils of war, the king of Sodom says to him, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, the king of Sodom wasn't just being nice. This was the tradition. If you win a war, you get the spoils. That's how things were done. But Abram didn't want the spoils. Look at verse 22. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Memre take their share. And that's it. You don't need Melchizedek to complete this story, but God put him here. So why is Melchizedek interrupting this story? Right, What's the point? Right here in the middle. Well, let's look at it. Genesis 14, verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then a parenthetical remark. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so, who was Melchizedek? Well, apparently, from the text, he was a king in the land of Canaan. He wasn't even of a godly line. He didn't come from Abraham. He he descended from Noah, as everyone did in this day, but he was living in basically a pagan land and was a king. Yet God saved him through the covenant of grace and made him godly. John Gill says this, He was a Canaanite prince and a religious man, eminently raised up by God, and whose genealogy was kept secret that he might be in this, as in other things, a type of Christ. So we don't know where he came from. He appears to just appear. We don't know where he went. But he's a king uh, here of Salem. So why is Melchizedek mentioned? Well, in the story, there is a point to him. You can put him in the story and and see he's a foil to the king of Sodom. So you see what the king of Sodom is like, and you look at Melchizedek. The king king of Sodom is a wicked, terrible king of a wicked, terrible people. People, but in contrast, Melchizedek's name, Melchizedek, means my king is the righteous one. Mel- Malachi is my king, and then Sadiq is righteous, the righteous one. So here's what his name means: my ki- as the king of Salem, my king is God, the righteous one, the one true God of heaven. Now, he's, he's, remember, he's in a Canaanite polytheistic society, and he believes in the one true God. And it tells us he's a king of Salem. Now, the word Salem in Hebrew, you may hear it. You hear the word shalom, shalom, Salem, it's the same trilateral root in Hebrew, which just means you you might hear Hebrews greeting each other this way. Shalom, shalom can mean like hello, but what it really means is peace and well-being. And so he's a ruler of the city named Peace. You know, that's our great hope, isn't it, on the last day? Peace and well-being, that the whole earth will be a world of peace. And he's the king in the town of Salem. Now, there are many towns by the name of Salem, but scholars who study this area, they think that most likely he was the Canaanite king of Yerushalem, the Canaanite king of the city that would be Jerusalem, Salem, which means the city of peace, Yerushalayim. Uh, Melchizedek is a king whose own king is a righteous one, the one true God, and he lives in the city of peace, which is probably Jerusalem already. Can you see reading this how Melchizedek is a type, a shadow of Jesus? How closely connected his typology is to Christ. The righteousness of Christ brings peace to his people. How can you be, have peace with the one true God? Well, his blood and righteousness covers you how are you brought in to peace? Well, it's through what Jesus has done and by his indwelling within you. And the people of God in Christ are formed into the church. Who, who, what is the church? We are the new Jerusalem. We are the, the Jerusalem above. And when we die, we go there and one day it will descend and be upon earth. The church is the city of God. Melchizedek is a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ in all these ways. And what does he do? Well, he brings out bread and wine to Abram. What does that make you think of? Well, it's impossible. Looking back from the perspective of the new covenant, this is not an accident. God put it here this way on purpose. A priest's role, what is the role of a priest? Even in the old covenant, but it's to make Sacrifice. There's no way you can read this about bread and wine, but to think of the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and then a faint resemblance of that in the Lord's Supper, a symbol of Christ's sacrifice, bread and wine, his broken body, his poured out blood. But Melchizedek also gives the bread and wine as nourishment. Did you know this about the old testament sacrificial system most of the offering not all of them but many of them the point wasn't just that there would be a sacrifice some of them were but there are many that then had a meal to be observed after the sacrifice where the worshiper would have a meal there with god in the temple which was the end it is the end goal what's the goal of the cross of jesus what's the goal of the sacrifice is it not that you would have communion with god objectively And subjectively, that you would know him and walk with him. This is what this is all signifying. He brings bread and wine as a blessing, a symbol of communion with God. This is what a priest does. And finally, we see the blessing that Melchizedek pronounced upon Abram in verses 19 and 20. He says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything." So why does he call him God Most High? That's a very special title. What it means is there is no higher spiritual being. He is the Most High. It means he's higher than any of the false gods of the nations. That's what this title means in that ancient context. He is the one true God. And it refers to him as the possessor of heaven and earth, which means that he owns it all. He rules all the earth. That word possessor can be translated creator. He's the creator of all the world, which it's hard for us to grasp this, but in this day, that would have blown everyone's minds to think there's one God who is the creator and possessor of all things because it was filled with all kinds of ideas of false gods. And so there we see the The account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he just appears and then he's gone again, but now back to Psalm 110, and let's see the rest of our original text. Psalm 110, we're not going to get to Hebrews 7 today, but that's another place, There's only three places in the Bible Melchizedek appears, it's Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews 7. I'll mention it briefly, but let's just look and see what this says in Psalm 110. So, who is this Messiah? Who is this promised one who is coming? Well, we see at the beginning, he's a king, remember? He's a king. But here, in verse 4, he's not just a king, he's a priest. So, he's a priest king. Now, let me ask you, do you remember what would happen in the Old Testament if you were a king and tried to act like a priest? Saul, remember King Saul? What did he do? He, would, he, he took the ark into battle presumptuously. He sacrificed to God. He built an altar he wasn't supposed to build, and he made a sacrifice. He got in big trouble, big trouble. It was actually the whole kingdom was removed from him. So the king, kingdom and the priesthood were not to be joined, but this figure in Psalm 110, 110 is a legitimate priest king, a king who is a priest. And that's who Melchizedek was. A king who's also a priest. He's a type of Jesus. And here we learn something about how the Bible works that it has patterns that repeat themselves, that there's types and shadows of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on the same thing in he- Hebrews 7 and shows how Christ, who is in the kingly tribe of Judah, is also. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's vital to the argument of Hebrews. Here again, just a footnote about why it's in Hebrews. But he, the author of Hebrews had to explain how it is legitimate for Christ, who is of the kingly tribe of Judah, to also be a pr- priest, though he's not of the tribe of Levi. And the answer is Melchizedek. He's not a Levitical priest, Jesus. He's a Melchizedekian priest, a priest king. And so, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who is a king of his kingdom and he's the priest. And I wonder if you know why that's so important. You know, we need Jesus to be a priest and a king to win our affections, to win our hearts of faith to him that we might worship him freely from the inside out. The Lord Jesus... The risen Lord of glory never powers you against yourself. Isaiah 42, verses 2 to 4, speak of Christ's kingship. It says this, He will not cry aloud. It's the kind of king He is. He will not cry aloud. Or lift up His voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Instead, He will faithfully bring forth justice He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice on the earth. He sets Himself before our eyes as worthy and glorious. He shows Himself to be a powerful and righteous King who uses His power to defend us and save us. He convinces us by who He is and all that He's done that all of His commandments are for our good. He makes us to believe this, and this is why we willingly follow him into battle. And so we need Christ to be our king, a true monarch to rule us, but we also need Christ to be our priest, to make peace between us and a holy God so that we can fellowship with him and commune with him, eating bread and wine before him. This is the main point of the book of Hebrews, is that Christ is a priest but he sacrificed himself for our sins. He reconciles us to God. The wages of sin is death. Your sin and mine deserve the judgment of God, eternal judgment. But Jesus died as a substitute for wretched sinners, a self-sacrifice. He, he went into the, the grave and then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, always living to make intercession. And because Jesus is your priest and mine by faith alone, We can approach His throne of grace without fear. Do you? Do you go to Him in prayer? You can. You don't have to fear. He's a priest. What is troubling you? What burdens your heart and your soul? Is it guilt from within? Is it the fears and sorrows of this world? Is it the cares of this world? What is burdening you? Will you go to Him? You can, and He'll receive you. A bruised reed he doesn't crush. A smoldering flax he doesn't extinguish. Here's what Isaiah 40 says about Christ's priesthood. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And who is that? That's the church. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And verse 11 speaks of the good news of Christ's priesthood in Isaiah 40. It says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Do you think of Christ as both king and priest? That he redeems you, he saves you, and he rules you with his good law. Will you bow to him? You can go to him in prayer. But knowing His goodness and His love and that He's for you and not against you and He's proved it in every possible way, will you believe His commandments are for your good because the heart of a good lawgiver is the one who gave them to you, for you? He doesn't need your obedience. But He gives you His commands for your sake that you would learn to walk in His way more and more to live in the way of life. Will you obey Him? Will you repent of your sins that are remaining now? Pride, unbelief, anger, lust. It's all self-godding. It's a rejection of his goodness. Will you repent? Lying? And turn from your sins and learn to love Christ and love others as he has loved you. He's patient. He'll be patient with you as you learn this. He's a good priest, but he's a wise king. You have to repent, you have to change because He commands it and He commands it because He loves you. And He's good and He's proven His his own goodness to you in so many ways above all on the cross. Some people deny Christ's priesthood. They won't come to Him as priests because they're proud. They think they can save themselves. They think they know the way. They think they can achieve life, peace, wellness, well-being on their own terms and make it up as they go along and they will not submit themselves to Jesus as priest because they want to save themselves but you won't save yourself you'll just make it worse on yourself and so will I if I do that Jesus alone saves will you trust him to rescue you some people reject Christ's kingship because of his pride their pride they want to be washed of their guilt they only want to be forgiven so they can just live as they want according to self-made laws. But Christ's kingship graciously humbles us by showing us our need and winning us to Himself. He gently instructs our ignorance and gives us His commandments for our good. He doesn't crush us. He teaches us to trust Him and to love Him because we've first been loved. And when we embrace Jesus, the whole Christ, as priest and priest, and king then more and more we're filled with the knowledge of him by faith conformed to his image and being made fit temples for the indwelling of the spirit for life and joy and peace in this life and finally in the age to come so let's trust in jesus the priest and king who was shadowed by the old covenant and in the person of melchizedek to him be the glory. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day on which we open your word together and see the riches that you have put here for us to mine out through study and through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would cause this Jesus to fill our mind and our hearts, that we would believe him more, that we would see in the light of his glory more of our own sin, and that by faith we would be more resolved today. To put off the old and put on the new. To believe his great mercy, his blood that washes us, that he accepts us, and that he declares us righteous by grace through faith alone, not because of anything we do, but because of what he has done. And that we would draw near to him, knowing he prays for us, and that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of his good name. In Jesus' name, amen.